you would, turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have. We're looking, starting in verse 27. If you've just joined us, there are notes. Uh, they're in the back. You can also obtain those online. Uh, and just a reminder, our notes are searchable online, which is nice because there's quite, there's over 400 pages of notes now, I think. So uh, we've, we've amassed quite a collection. The book of Philippians, this is Paul's letter to a church that he's very endeared to. He spent time there. In fact, he suffered there. He was imprisoned, if you remember, and beaten first. Um, <clears throat> but it's a church that's been very supportive of him. This isn't like the letter to Corinth. Uh, or even to the churches in Galatia. Uh, and we, we talked about the purpose for why he's writing. One is to encourage them. Paul's imprisoned in Rome. Church has heard about it. They're concerned. In fact, they sent one of their leaders, Epaphroditus, to go minister to Paul. And that situation, which we'll get to later, he's writing to thank them for their support, not just financial, but prayer, and to rejoice in their progress. And, and if we look at, this is not in the notes, but kind of a layout of the book, the first two verses were dedicated to a greeting. We've discussed the thanksgiving. We've spent a couple sessions dealing with Paul's current situation, which is up through verse 26. And now we come to the body. Paul's kind of diverting his attention off of himself onto the church. And it's interesting in this next section, which is the bulk of the letter, the instruction for the church is going to be rooted in these four verses. They are key to the whole letter. So if you miss any session, this was not the one to miss, right? If we give a quiz at the end, which we just might do. Who knows? Um, so in verse 27, let's look at this <clears throat> because Watson and some other scholars have in, uh, clearly shown how this verse is the springboard for all that's going to be discussed through the rest of the book. It starts off in verse 27. He says, only. Now, I'm reading from the Net Bible, the New English Translation. You might have an ESV or a New American. Uh, this isn't the, uh, it's just a version that I, I enjoy, but that's what I'm reading out of. So forgive me if it's not matching up exactly as yours. He starts off, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the banner for the whole book. Right? If you're asking, what is Philippians about? It's this, the command to, to live in accordance to the gospel. Well, uh, he unpacks this for us. He says, so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, uh, some have argued that's because he's not sure whether the, his imprisonment will continue. I suspect more so already as we've studied, he knows he's going to be released, but he's not sure when uh, he'll be back to Philippi. That's modern Greece today. And he says, <clears throat> whether I'm there or not, I should hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind by contending side by side for the faith of the gospel and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of their destruction. This verse is extremely difficult to translate. We'll unpack it. Unpack it. But it's a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. And that is present tense, so the suffering is ongoing. Since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face, and now hear that I am facing. 
Let's jump back. Let's unpack this text. And he starts off by this call to conduct yourselves. Um, in fact, the word right before it uh, in the Net Bible is only. Uh, it's a very strong word. It's, it's like set up. I'm about to tell you something extremely important. Uh, there's one essential thing. Uh, is one way you could translate it. Uh, Bart in his commentary says it's the warning finger of Philippians that's coming through. You need to pay attention, kind of an idea. And so it's very strong. He says, conduct yourselves. This term for conduct is very unusual for Paul. Normally he'll use the term which is translated walk. Walk in the things of the Lord. This word has connotations to being a, a citizen of the state, uh, conducting accordingly. And so it's not only that you are a citizen of a state, but you are to live and to fulfill the role of the state. Why would he use this term for this audience? What do we know about, remember what we said was about Philippi and the Philippians? It's a Roman colony, right? These are veterans who've been given a parcel of land citizenship, and thus they're tax-exempt, etc. So they know full well about what it means to be a citizen of the state. That's very key for this group. Remember Acts chapter 16 when Paul's arrested? And Paul, he's beaten and imprisoned, and it's not till the next day he says, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, which you never do. You don't touch one of Rome's own without a fair trial, which they didn't do, which means if it's reported back to Rome, Philippi could lose their tax exemption. They could lose their status as a colony. And that's why they, the magistrates freak out. The text is very clear. They are like begging Paul, oh, please go, please go. We're so sorry. You just get the idea. Why? Because they understand. And Paul says, you know what it's like to be a citizen and what that entails being one of. And citizenship in the first century was rare in the Roman Empire. It's not by the third century. But in the first century, it was extremely rare especially for a Jew, which is interesting for Paul. And, and now he says, notice what the text says, in a manner worthy of the gospel. So now, as I mentioned there in your notes, it's because of the gospel the Philippian believers have gained a heavenly citizenship, membership of the church, and it's that gospel which they are to live out. So yeah, you, you, you have a Roman citizenship, but far greater is this heavenly citizenship and you need to live accordingly. Um, he's, he, he's headed, obviously, towards this end. Any questions on this? Accordingly. Accordingly. I mean, they're gonna, we're going to talk about what that means that you live out the worthy. How do you live out a worthy, uh, or a life that's worthy of the gospel? What does that mean? He's going to give us two things to run with here in a minute. Yes, John. Uh, 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 I don't think so. I think that's a different term, but let me just check. Uh, now that you say that. Yes, it is the same term. Excuse me. Yep, it is the same term. So, yeah. Uh, he, he's, and again, it's very rare for Paul to use this term. Uh, and it, and it's a fa I, in fact, it's, if I recall, it only occurs twice in the New Testament, both in the, the two spots that we just highlighted. So... Um, he says, in, in light of this, I want you to stand firm. Now watch this in verse 27. I should hear that you are standing firm. And as I highlight from Hawthorne's commentary, he states, 
this term conveys the idea of firmness or steadfastness or unflinching courage that is possessed by soldiers who refuse to leave their post, irrespective of how severely the battle rages. The church, the believers at Philippi have already seen persecution. And based on what we're he seeing here, they're undergoing some type of suffering. To what level, we don't know. Um, but certainly one of their great leaders, Paul, is imprisoned and he is suffering. And he will highlight, look at verse 30. He says, what I'm encountering, you are as well. It's the same conflict. They're maybe not imprisoned, but the basis for what they're suffering is the same. And we'll get to that. But he says, stand firm. How do we live out a life that's worthy of the gospel? Number one, we're standing firm. And he says in, notice this in verse 27, in one spirit, in one mind. Why? By contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. As we look at this standing firm, he gives two issues here that demonstrate living a life that's worthy of the gospel. Number one, we're contending together. Unity is vital. In fact, the term that he uses there, uh, standing firm and contending, is the idea of, it's used for gladiators. Uh, and, and the faith here, as you look at the next page, is we're dealing with Christian doctrine, right? We are standing together. The implication is what? If we're not standing together, what happens to the cause? Here. It's splintered. I, I wrote in your notes, the failure of the church to be unified distorts, undermines, and even destroys. And this is the problem at Philippi, right? This is where he's going with this. Next week, we're going to look at Christ becomes the gold standard of, of being humble and how you engage one another. He'll use Timothy. He'll use Epaphroditus before this letter is over of talking about unity. And, and he'll even address some disunity. Remember, Odia and Syntyche, I jokingly refer to them as Odia and Stinky, as being real problems in the church. He'll get to them in a minute, or in chapter 4. But he's calling for unity within the church. And uh, O'Brien states, the Philippians are to stand united in their struggle for the cause of the faith. And so, he says, you want to live out the gospel and, and, and do it accordingly? You need to stand firm, number one, being unified. It is vital to the church. Secondly, he argues that we need to contend with boldness. This comes in the second part here when he says not being intimidated, not budging. The term not being intimidated is a word that, that's used of an uncontrollable stampede of startled horses. <laughs> He says, don't get carried away with this. Hold fast. Don't panic, right? That we need to not only be unified, but we need to have the chutzpah not to, to bend under the pressure. This is living out the gospel. <clears throat> you know, Paul's already demonstrated that, hasn't he, in chapter 1? Right? What does he say? We already talked about this. For me to, to live is Christ, to die is gain, and I will not bend. And so he's kind of served as already a standard for them. He says, you can't do this. In our culture, it's a little more difficult. We're not imprisoned because we name 
Christ, but you could miss out on a job promotion. You could um, be ridiculed because you don't laugh at the jokes that the rest of the colleagues are laughing at in the office, etc., etc. There is a form of suffering on one level, even living in the U.S., and it's getting worse, right, Micah? <laughs> uh, as we take stands on particular issues that Scripture is clear on. And, and Paul's saying, you cannot bend. That's, that's part of standing for the gospel. And then he makes a very interesting statement in verse 28 that is extremely profound. He says, the sign by doing so by not being intimidated by the opponents, which we'll get to later in Philippians. It says, this is the sign of their destruction, but of your salvation. Dan Wallace, in his Greek grammar, makes a very interesting point here. And this is in that huge paragraph, and forgive me for being so wordy, but this is a difficult verse to translate. Wallace argues that we're dealing with reference, that is, it's a sign of, of destruction to them, and it's to their disadvantage, that is, to the opponent, those who have persecuted the church. And so he states, the enemies of the gospel do not possess, this is in the middle of that big paragraph, their destruction, but are unfortunate recipients of it. But believers do possess their salvation. He states, and this is important, the contrast is not merely stylistic, but involves rich subtleties that are often not brought out in the translation. What is he talking about? What Paul is stating and demonstrated through the grammar is that Paul is saying, you take a stand for Christ. What you're doing, it's a sign, and it's a sign that has two prongs. First, it's a demonstration of your salvation. You truly are his because you do take a stand, but it's also an indictment on those who persecute you. It's a sign that they're going to be destroyed because they have not responded to what you're standing firmly in. And what are you standing firmly in or on? What? What's the text say? Gospel, right? You're standing on the gospel. And if they're going to persecute you for the gospel, there's no hope for them. And it's a judgment on them as well. So Paul is saying, and I mentioned that in your notes, the Christian's endurance of persecution is clear proof of future relief for the believer and also, it shows how one is to respond to the gospel and determine the eternal state. So Paul is saying, listen, you are to conduct your lives worthy of the gospel. He's going to flesh this out in the next two chapters. But in standing firm, we, we stand united, we stand in boldness. And by doing that, it forms a sign, a sign, number one, you are his. And secondly, it's going to indicate uh, there's an upcomings that uh, these persecutors are going to receive because they have persecuted the church. If you bend, there's a question of your salvation, and you've tarnished the gospel and its ramifications. Questions on this? For, I'm trying to grab some people. Any questions or comments? Is this, is this clear where he's going? Because it's, 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 it's... Should we relish their destruction? We, we wish that none should perish, right? Even Christ says that. But a holy God also has to have a hell. A loving God has to have a hell. Uh, the Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by D.A. Carson, uh, spends, he spends a whole section on because God is loving, there is a hell. He's given us a choice, and there are consequences for sin. But this is a, as we see 
time and time again in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, vindication of the saints, right? A vindication of those who stood for the Lord. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He said, there is a sign. By you doing this, it's, it's heaping destruction on them. And the text is clear there. So no, I don't relish in it. But there is a vindication for doing so. And then he closes out, verse 29. He says, and, and I've, another way you could translate it is, for that which is on behalf of Christ has been granted to you, namely, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. And th this leads us to a question. <clears throat> what implications is Paul making when he compares our faith to our suffering? Notice verse 29. It's been graciously given, a term only used by Luke and Paul in the New Testament, not only to believe, but also to suffer. What's the implications of that verse? What's he, what's he saying? Yeah, number one, God's in charge. And by the way, Paul reiterates that by using a passive voice. We call it divine passive. God is the one that allows you to believe. The text is very clear that you believe. You say, well, I, I placed my faith in Christ. That's because God allowed it. That's what the text is saying. And secondly, your sufferings from the Lord, which we're going to get to in a minute, because that's a difficult pill to swallow. In fact, he says it was both our graciously given, right? Which is huge ramifications. All right, someone else. Yeah, Gary. Yep, and we're going to get to that. That's right, because God is in charge. He's graciously given. What else? Good. What else is implied here? I'll put that down because you, it's for our benefit. I think there is an implication there underlying it. I, I wrote down... Both are outside the norm. Of our culture. Even belief in God to suffering for God. Interesting that uh, that concept. Probably half a dozen times. In the First Peter. Uh, he mentions a couple times. Matthew mentions it. Uh, I can't keep the citation. Yeah, that suffering is a gracious gift from God. Paul's already talked about that in his own life, right? Go back to chapter, earlier part of one. Uh, he says, if, if I remain, though I don't really want to, it's going to be the, for the sake of your progress and joy, right? And, and earlier he said, hey, I'm thankful I'm in prison because now the whole Praetorian Guard has heard about the gospel. And it's caused you to be bold, which is what he's already argued. That's how you live out your faith and boldness. So 
He said, I'm glad that I'm in prison. I'm glad that I've suffered. Not suffering for sin, that's a whole different matter, right? We're not talking about because you did X, Y, Z, now there's consequence. That's what he's dealing with. At the bottom of your notes, I mentioned, note that it is the hand of God which allows for the persecution, sustains them in the midst of the trial, brings merit to their suffering, and assures them of a future salvation. It's huge. And so when you look at suffering, and he says, you know, you just suffer for him, which also is a loaded term, there's a few things to tease out here. Their suffering was not due to some divine oversight, or we got an angry God who just wants to, who's a rather sadistic. No, no, no. He says it's because he is gracious. Turn to Philippians 3. It's a text we're going to look at later, but look at Philippians 3.10. Paul says, my aim is to know him. One of the greatest books ever written in Christendom, at least in the last hundred years, is Packer's Knowing God. Here it is, is to know him, right? To experience the power of his resurrection and notice the next clause, to share in his sufferings. Can you say that? That's to me, and to be like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. We're going to pack that later. But Paul is saying, listen, God has graciously given us the opportunity to suffer for him, to to engage. Yes, Rick. I know that preach is good, but boy, that lives hard. It lives very hard. It lives very hard. And and again, we got to keep in mind, it's not that God is wrathful. It's a gracious gift for the sake of his glory, the sake of the gospel. And and let me unpack further a little bit here, because there's another point he's making. Suffering was due to the privilege of sharing in the gospel, which we're just talking about, to to greatly understand it. And the suffering, this is interesting, demonstrates sincere faith, right? He's given you the grace not only to believe, but also to suffer. So if you don't suffer, Implication, you're not his. Jesus said, you're not greater than the master, are you? I mean, uh, Mike and I were talking about how politically things seem to be, uh, it's a little alarming, some of the stuff against the church at large. But it shouldn't shock us, right? It shouldn't be surprised that, you know, uh, we got politicians who want to strip the church of tax exemption, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on, on it goes. Why? Because they're hostile things of the Lord. Um, doesn't make it more pleasant. And, and the idea of fellowshipping in the gospel, uh, the last paragraph there before we get to the intersect says, addressing the topic of suffering in Paul's writings, one scholar observes that the believer's willingness to imitate Paul by joyfully continuing in faith Hope and love in the midst of their own afflictions is a sign of their legitimate standing in Christ. That's why he's already talked about in chapter 1 earlier his own situation. It's to spur them on, right? Uh, the, The teacher knows full well the lesson. He's lived it and is living it. In fact, that's what he says in verse 30. I know your conflict. In fact, 
you know what I endured at Philippi for you? I think that's why he didn't tell him he was a Roman citizen until after the beating and the imprisonment. I don't know about you, but I would have said, uh, before you beat me, I'm a Roman citizen. No, I think he waited for the sake of the gospel and to protect those left behind. Because you do it to anybody else, I'm going to report you. Uh, that's Hoffaditz's theory. The text doesn't tell us, right? I'm reading into the white space. But Paul said, I've already set a standard, and, and I understand. I was there, and in fact, I'm currently in suffering, as he mentions there in verse 30. Yeah. No, verse 29 highlights twice it's for Christ. It's Christ, the gospel. This is what drives us. And that's why he says in verse 27 that we live a, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. You know, he gives it as a command, but isn't it a great blessing? The opportunity to live out the gospel in our lives, right? To, to be an ambassador for Christ. Let me give you three things to hang on your beak as we leave, as we reflect on this. First of all, our God is very familiar with suffering. Christ's own sufferings become the basis of our glorious faith and that which provides hope for the future, right? Our Lord is not... Uh, he is the uh, one, according to Hebrews, who's come and he's dwelt, he's understood, He understands fully what we're going through. Matthew Henry... Uh, I know this is a quote from years gone by. He was a nonconformist pastor in the 1600s, 1700s. He writes, Come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are thy healings or your healings. His agonies, your repose, right? His conflicts, your, your conquest. His groans, your songs. His shame, your glory. His death, your life. His sufferings, your salvation. Suffering is not foreign to Christ. It's not foreign to Paul. And that's why they can say, man, keep up, don't bend, and stay united in the process, which is <laughs> uh, sometimes more difficult than standing strong. Um, standing, uh, suffering for standing firm in the gospel assures us of our salvation. The text is clear. It's right there in verse 29. Uh, Romans 5. Let me give you another text. Turn to Romans just quickly. Look at this passage. Paul highlights this elsewhere in Romans 5, starting in verse 3. Paul's whole letter is about justification, meaning declared righteous. And if so, what does that mean? That's the whole basis of this letter. He says in verse 3, not only this, that we rejoice in sufferings. That's what he's saying to the church at Philippi. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Rejoice in your suffering. When uh, I've met with folks who have, uh, you know, suffered for Christ, whether it's because they took a stand, et cetera, et cetera. You know God is working when they said, you know, it really hurt, but I'm so grateful that I went through that. We, we know we've hit a new level of maturity. 
because it's, I'm not saying that bitterness doesn't kind of weasel its way in from time to time, but there's an overall understanding, no, God is glorified, and I got to stand for the truth. And that's not an easy thing. Suffering for standing firm in the gospel assures us of our salvation, though. And then finally, while God is not the author of suffering, we need to be careful here. He allows suffering for his own good purposes. Rejoice that the Lord would afford you the opportunity to share in his sufferings. Remember, remember Joseph's words in Genesis 50? Who's got that text? You could read it. It's... Yeah, you meant it for evil, he says to the brothers, but God meant it for good. That's, that's an amazing statement, right? Because Joseph could have had all of his brothers, not only in prison, he could have had them executed. He says, no, what's happened here is for God's glory. Another is 1 Peter 4. I want you to look at this text. This is what we're going to close with. It is so powerful. 1 Peter, we've studied as a group, the epistle of grace. Peter's our type A personality. <laughs> He's made some mistakes. God is still graciously using him. And he pins these words in verses 13 and 14. But rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ. What's that mean? You've shared in the sufferings of Christ. means you've identified with him, right? Spiritual therapy. Yeah, spiritual. You, you've, 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 you've stood with the gospel. You've stood with him and, 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 and his name so that when his glory is revealed, you may also rejoice and be glad. If you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, who is the spirit of God, rests on you. And then he goes on to state, but don't suffer because you're a jerk. <laughs> Suffer because you're willing to take a stand for Christ, right? And, and some of, I know there's several who own their own business or you're in a situation where that's not as relevant. Some of you in the room, the ramifications are huge. And, and, and Paul's saying, don't bend. Don't bend. In fact, by you not bending, it's a huge sign that has two prongs. One, it demonstrates you belong to the Lord. Secondly, it, it, it's a warning to those who are persecuting you. Don't bend. And to the church, stay unified, right? It's part of living out the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, it, I think it's a little more difficult for us to grasp issues of suffering in the sense that none of us are being imprisoned or uh, being put to death, like in Iran, etc. But there is an element of suffering, I think, even here in this country. And as Micah can testify, I think that's only increasing as time progresses. I'm not trying to sound like a doom's prophet, but Paul would say, yay. That's great, because Christ can be further exalted. Pink 
This is in the quote at the beginning of the notes. Afflictions are light when compared with what we really deserve. <laughs> right? Who are we? They are light when compared with the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. But perhaps their real lightness is best seen by comparing them with the weight of glory which is waiting for us. Isn't that a great quote? Yes. We've not suffered to the point like Christ, but we have the joy of identifying with his sufferings and taking a stand and living out the gospel. Yeah, Ron. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, uh, think of I, uh, the greatest example I can think of right now is Andrew Brunson, the pastor who was in prison. I, I went to school with him overseas. Uh, Andrew's had some test opportunities to exalt the name of the Lord in, in venues that uh, we've just not had that opportunity maybe in the past. So all for the cause of Christ. Well, Father, we, as Rick has mentioned uh, this morning, suffering is not easy. It's not the route we would take, but we are not you. We are not God. And in fact, you allow us to suffer out of your gracious hand so that we can grow in our walk with you, so that we can exalt you. Father, today allow us, help us to live out the gospel, to conduct our lives worthy of this glorious message. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if this isn't rich, just wait till next week, because Paul is going to take us to Christ. Uh, he's focused on himself, he's focused on the Philippians, now he's going to use Christ as the true exhibit A.